Well, um, it's been quite a week, a lot going on. Um, we're, we're in Isaiah 65. Actually, we're going to be in Isaiah 64, 65, and 66, and we'll finish on time, trust me. Um, and uh, the last service, I had no idea where we were going with it, but the Lord seemed to put it together. It's a kind of a combination of everything that's transpired through the week, and as we've been going through the book of Isaiah, um, the Lord opened up uh, one particular picture um, in, in Isaiah 64, and then it melded into 65 in a verse, and then um, 66 is the one I want to kind of conclude with this morning. So if you need a Bible, these folks walking down the aisle will give you one. Just raise your hand. And um, there'll be a little bit of an introduction before we get into the study. Um, I wanted, I didn't do this last service, but I really wanted to. Um, and I, I'm, I'm going to do it this service because I, I realize we have time to do it. And it's an article that um, really blessed me. Uh, in the last service, we had uh, two of the families that had lost loved ones. Um, and um, and I, I imagine in this service, we've got folks that are just reeling this has been an, an awful, awful week. Uh, there is a, I call them the usual suspects, um, folks that you don't necessarily want to be in this club. We have been going from one memorial service to the next, and um, a number of the family members have put it upon their heart to go to each one of the memorial services. They've been to the one for their child and then they're going to the ones for all the others. The city council has purposed, as has the other elected officials, to do the same. And um, we've been going to each of these and we see each other. And one rolls into the next and then into the next. You'll go to the vigils, you'll go to the memorials, um, there's events that you're asked to attend and we go. And it's been real hard. Um, but the part that's ministered to me greatly is watching some of these parents who've lost their kids. And they could, they could take any pulpit in this city and do a better job than any of the ministers. As Pastor Michael was sharing, we're real good at preaching Jesus, but not necessarily living him. We've, we've established the hermeneutics on, on how to use intonation and, and rhetoric, and, and we've, we know how to parse the text. And... You just spend a little time with one of these families and in the depths of their grief, they've probably easily hugged 10,000 necks. And everyone in the community is coming up to them looking for solace, wanting to give to them solace but not realizing they're just one person hugging one person but the person they're hugging has hugged thousands of people. And every hug is a reminder and they're pouring out because the community needs from them something that they have to reach into the depths of, of their being to provide. And I watch each of these family members as I've been with them get stronger and stronger and stronger. 
Bible says when a man loses his life, there he gains it. I don't, I don't think we get the significance of that. At least I, I, I haven't until it hit me this week. They are amazing people. This is an amazing community. I've also found in the course of traveling with the usual suspects, I should say, I haven't come up with a better term, or the posse of pain. It's kind of creative. As I've traveled with them, there are folks that probably in the course of life wouldn't give me the time of day. They're, they're politically opposite of me and I'm politically opposite of them. They run in different circles and we find ourselves sitting in the same row, set aside. And I've come to realize how special they are. You know what is interesting about them? They cry just like I do. And they don't look like Democrat tears. <laughs> or Republican tears. Or independent tears. They're human. And we start to have pretty interesting conversations that are really sweet. I've learned a lot too, observing. I was at... Uh, Justin's memorial service yesterday at the Samuelson Chapel. And President Kimball was there. And Samuelson Chapel doesn't hold a lot of folks. It does have a balcony. And it filled up. The service was at two and it was full by one. And President Kimball, the gentleman that he is, obviously he had no seat. I got there at 12.30 to ensure a seat. I would get to each of these services early to get a seat, only knowing that I'm getting to occupy that seat because somebody else who's going to need it, the, the members of the, of the council will stand. And you stand through most of those services because you're giving your seat away. And I was next to President Kimball, and he said... Uh, I asked him, I said, President Kimball, how's this affected CLU? And he said, it's been pretty hard. He says, we've got to do something to address this and the young folks. And I said, you know, we have ideological issue between this idea of, of secularism and believing in a creator. And I said, over here in the material world, where we're just matter and there's no God, Man becomes a dichotomy, a two-part being, body and soul, intellect. Over here, in the faith community, man's a trichotomy, body, soul, and spirit. And I thought I was impressing the president, and he boiled it down and humbled me, and he said, a two-legged stool isn't very effective for sitting on. You need three legs. Body, soul, and spirit. 
The service at the Samuelson Chapel was precious. I watched Captain and Mrs. Meek minister to. I was blessed by that. There's, there's been a number of, of events that have occurred where I'm watching, I'm watching um, the presence of Christ in places I never thought would be. And in spite of the barriers the church has built, lives are being profoundly affected by the most unsuspecting ministers I ran into a fireman, his, his name's Corey, and he, every year he's asked to speak at the 9-11 memorial, and his comment to me outside the Starbucks was, you know, I remember speaking at a 9-11 anniversary, and I told them, I said, there's something really good about 9-11, and it took the audience back. He said, when the nation was hit with a tragedy, They did something they don't normally do. They came together. He said, it would be good if we operated every day of our life as though a tragedy had just occurred. Because I'm coming to really deeply love and appreciate people I'd never spend time with. I've sat through all the services. I've heard some really great sermons and some really lousy ones. The lousy ones to me are the ones where it's a timeshare deal. And you're going to get that notch in your belt and you're going to lead that person to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. Well, I got news for you. The scripture says, mourn with those who mourn, weep with those who weep, rejoice with those who rejoice. You want to do your evangelism, do it somewhere else. I'm not dismissing the gospel. Please understand. But it just rings hollow. When Michael talked about this idea of being Christ to people, the outpouring of love that's occurred, I, I'm humbled and convicted by the family members. I'm convicted by those that had suffered at the borderline and the way in which they've ministered so profoundly. I've watched as Ministries and organizations outside of our city have seen a great opportunity to profit from this. I'm not interested. What's really impressed me is how this city's come together. I'm proud of the leadership of the city. Sean Thornton, what a, what a sweet man. They, they couldn't have services because of the fires. They changed their entire schedule and availed their sanctuary to every family of a victim for whenever they would want to do the service. And the whole staff has come out to do that. Now, the way Calvary Community operates is everything they do is resplendent and it is calculated and it is, it is directed and their calendar is planned six to eight months in advance. And it's like a massive battleship. And if you have to turn that thing, it's like... God speak is like a speedboat. We're like... Let's go that way. (laughs) 
And so when we all get together, the pastors, and we got together, I, I imagine I just probably frightened Pastor Sean. <laughs> so what we got to do, and we can do, and then, then we'll do them. He's like, oh. <laughs> Bless his heart, though. He just, he said, all right. And, and, and that requires an enormous moving of resources for them. And yet never, never was he upset. Never was his staff upset. Just watching how seamlessly we work together. Um, the chief of police of our city. Well, first of all, a mayor that immediately wants to hold a vigil for the city so that all the political entities that want to make some sort of hay out of our hurt, he preempts that so that we as a city can mourn. And he opens the evening with scripture. I'm, I'm looking, are we in California or Texas? <laughs> I've watched that man who is a seasoned firefighter, assistant fire chief for the city of Los Angeles. I've seen that man weeping. He's prayerful, he's thoughtful, he's precious. The council stood together. And, and then the chief of police, Tim Hagel, he'd be here today. I said, chief, would you come out? He said, I'll come anytime you want. His life has preached a sermon to me that makes anything I've ever attempted to do almost silly. He's visited every one of the families. And the reason why he's not here is he drove up to Napa to take the personal belongings of the young lady from Napa who passed. Wanted to go be with the family. He uh, sent me a text yesterday. And, and I'll, let me back it up a little bit. Uh, Supervisor Foy, who's been instrumental in ministering to the community, he, he said uh, Secretary of the Interior, Ryan Zink, who's a Navy SEAL, was going to come out and lay a wreath at the memorial. The crosses, by the way, the crosses that are on Moore Park and Rolling Oaks. They were put there by um, a man who lives in Chicago, 70 years old. He builds them in his basement, researches the name, puts the names on it, and drives them all night in a U-Haul, drops them off, turned around, and left without any fanfare. Currently, he's making, preparing 200 crosses for what we're expecting to happen up in paradise. There's over 1,000 missing. We don't know what's going to happen. They lost their whole town. And as these crosses were placed there, and it immediately became a memorial and just covered with flowers and, and, and trinkets of, of love adorning each of the crosses, uh, the, the secretary of the interior came to lay roses there, not knowing if the president would be able to move his schedule to come. And Supervisor Foy invited me out after our event. We went over there at three o'clock and, and Ryan, Secretary Zinke uh, showed up, Ryan. And he's a Navy SEAL, by the way. And uh, I'm, I'm kind of buying time and I'm over by the crosses and I'm, I'm with Jason, who's, who's Cody's dad, and we've become close. And, and uh, with, with Cody's stepmom and, and 
I'm talking about each of the crosses and what I know about each of the victims. And I get to Justin Meek, Meek and I say, you know, he went to my high school. He played water polo for the coach I played water polo for. He lifeguarded on the same beach I lifeguarded on. He was in the same Boy Scout troop I was in. And as I'm sharing this, somebody says, well, that's the captain right next to you. And I look and he looks at me and he goes, you went to, I go, yeah. And his wife was there. I knew this was, this is, this is another God thing. And we started talking and I said, Captain Meek, do you know Commander Bruce Morris? He says, I know the doctor because he has a PhD. I said, he was my childhood, one of my best friends. Immediately we're connected. And when uh, the, the Secretary of the Interior sees Captain Meek, who's a Navy SEAL, postponed his retirement November 10th because his son was murdered. And he came here to, to be with the community. And they're going to do another service down in Coronado. Th- there was a connection there. It's hard to see strong men cry. These are both seasoned Navy SEALs. They've seen stuff. But nobody's supposed to outlive their kids. And we we had the service and, and I get this text from Chief Hagel. He says, Rob... The Meeks are big fans of the president. We understand he's coming to California. Can he get him to come to Thousand Oaks? And I'm reading this text. I'm thinking, Tim, you got me mistaken for somebody else. I'm in the book of who's he, not in the book of who's who. So I, I, I said, you know, uh, I, don't, I don't know if I can do a thing. I said, let me try. And I, and I, don't, I don't even know that I, I really probably did anything. But I, I sent this out. Uh, I, I, I figured, okay, who can get through the layers of the onion? So we've met Congressman Bob McEwen, and I called Bob, and I asked him. And he connected with Paul Teller and Brian Jack, the Deputy White House uh, political director, and he sent the message that I had put forward, and they said, um, the, the president will connect with the family, and uh, so glad you called. And then he connected with uh, Chief of Staff Kelly's personal assistant, and then connected with Kellyanne, Kellyanne Conway's. So that happened. Then I sent an email to Mike Huckabee, and... Um, I asked him if he could do something and I explained to him about the captain and about the retirement, about his son and about the other family members. And I said, I, I, I don't know if the president can meet with any of the family members. And I wrote that out to Mike and Mike's response to me was, consider it done, exclamation point. I said, thank you, Mike. He texts me later uh, within two hours and he says, Sarah said White House is reaching out to the family. Um... 20 minutes later, I said, you're wonderful. 10 minutes after that, he said, yes, I am, even if you are the only person on the earth who thinks that. <laughs> then the service came, and it was at 2 o'clock, the memorial service, and we, we understood that the president would only be at Point Magoo at 2 o'clock, and so it was conflicting with the service for his son, so the captain who wanted to see the president couldn't do it. Chief Hagel wouldn't have it. He, he, uh, he's such a precious man. He's, he's going to figure this out. 
First he gives up his seat and the chapel's packed and he's making sure everybody's cared for and he's on his phone and uh, we release the doves and tears and the chief is on the phone and he says uh, to the captain and his wife, he says, get in the police car. And then Michelle and I leave and I call the chief uh, after I drop Michelle off and I hear sirens in the back. I'm like, oh my goodness, what's going on? S- loud sirens. And he goes, Rob, I gotta put you on hold. I'm running a red light. <laughs> okay. And I'm waiting and I hear talking and, and then all of a sudden he gets back on. He says, um, I got the captain and his wife and I've got the spady boy and uh, We've gotten clearance through the CHP and we have authorization and I've got the lights blaring code three. We're going to get them there. And he did. Here's proof of it. I said, uh, oh, and by the way, one of the other people I'd contacted was Sean Spicer and he got all the way through and he said, uh, off the record, the president will be there. And and then uh, I wrote to Mike. I said, dear Mike, uh, Captain Meek left after his son's memorial service today with our chief. Code three, made it in time to meet the president. Thank you. Yes, you are wonderful. Blessings, Rob. And he said, so glad, exclamation point. So how does that tie in with any of this and the, the article that I want to read to you? It brings me to this passage as we've been going through Isaiah, and you'll see the connection because the Lord's spoken to my heart in relation to it. As we've been going through the, the book of Isaiah, we come to this passage in 64, Isaiah 64, and what is fascinating about it is the Lord is speaking to the nation of Israel, and he looks at them as they're struggling in their faith. He says, for since the beginning of the world, men have not heard nor perceived by the ear, nor has the eye seen any God besides you, who acts for the one who waits for him. You meet him who rejoices and does righteousness, who remembers you in your ways. When something like this hits our city, when something like this hits our state, a sledgehammer goes to the foundation of whatever it is you're standing on. And it doesn't matter if you believe what I believe. You still get hit with the same sledgehammer I got hit with. We all got hit with it. Some people begin to topple. And they got to find higher ground. And they end up in places they never expected to be. And they're hugging people they never expected to hug. Because their world is upside down. And what the Lord is saying is there's two, two great truths in the universe. And I've said this. The two great truths in the universe. There is a God. And you and I are not him. And some people are going, why does it have to be a him? <laughs> and, and that's for discussion later. Let's just get to the basics right here. What are you standing on? And and as this happens, it brings me to the passage that really hit me. Look at Isaiah 65. It says, I was sought by those who did not ask for me. I was found by those who did not seek me. 
I said, here I am, here I am. Actually, I love the King, King James Version. It says, behold me, behold me, God says. To a nation that is not called, was not called by my name, I've stretched out my hands all day long to a rebellious people who walk in a way that is not good according to their own thoughts. Before this misery and this hell struck our city, we were going about our daily activities, we all had our agendas, and all of a sudden this sledgehammer hit us all. And people who have never bothered to call upon the name of the Lord are having a deeper relationship with him than most people in a church right now. Because it is a real relationship founded in a moment of absolute pain that they haven't found anywhere to go but in the presence of God. And as the scripture clearly says, as, as, as I was sought by those who did not ask me, where do I go? What do I do? And I said, behold me. Behold me, God says. When President Kimball said about the two-legged stool, Only material, nothing spiritual. The dichotomy of man, two parts. There's, there's no good and evil. There's no God. He doesn't exist. Or she. There's nothing. It's only a material world. No metaphysical. It's just material. Matter can be neither created nor destroyed. It just is. That's a lot of people in California going, yeah. And then this hits, and that stool falls. And my favorite is the emails I get from people. I can't believe that you're, 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 you're evil. You should be damned. Whatever it is, whatever they've picked apart and whatever video they saw me in, they are coming after me. And they write me these emails. And I tell them, I go, you can't do that. You can't use the word good and evil. That's my world. You've only got a two-legged stool. There's no right and wrong. There's no good and evil because those are metaphysical terms. You're only a material world. You don't get to use right and wrong, good and evil. There's no morality in your world. You can't call me that. You can't even say Hitler was bad. It doesn't work that way. You don't get to, to amalgamate my worldview with yours just to prove that somehow you're justified in your anger towards me. But what's fascinating is the ones that have this two-legged stool... If you provide the ministry of presence, just be there. Don't do your, don't do your timeshare deal. Just be there. They'll ask you the questions that you have the answers to. And there's there's this connection that they're drawn to your life and they, and as we're going from place to place, simple things that open their, their eyes to the, 
the presence of good and evil is the way you're treating people in the midst of all this. You're giving them your seat. You're there with them and you're, you're endeavoring with them. We get so consumed with ourselves that we don't step into the lives of others. And that's what I love about Chief Hagel. I, don't, I, I honestly wonder if the man has slept at all. Sheriff Ayub, I, I asked the same question. I, I'm, I'm blown away by them. And I look at hundreds of kids that are hugging the captain and his wife while they're going through their own personal mourning of their son being gone. And every one of the kids, they're looking into their eyes and they're hugging them. I'm looking at Lori and Dan doing the same thing. I'm looking at these, watching Jason. I I saw him at the vigil and he looked rested. I said, have you gotten any sleep? You look good. He goes, no, I just went out and drove golf balls to clear my mind so I could be back out here to love on these kids. Are, Are you kidding me? And like the Lord is saying, and I shared this, when the, when the evacuation orders came, we removed everything in the house that had a heartbeat. It just seemed normal. And there isn't really anything there that I want to keep. I almost welcome it. I got a storage facility. I don't even know what's in it. Maybe the fire could just go there. And for those of you who lost things, I I was at a a party, a dinner party last night where folks were loving on Michelle and I and and we had to split because Michelle had to go back for a family concern and it it was resolved. But they were the ones who told me the story about the man that his whole house had burned down. And they interviewed him on the news. You remember this last week? And his comment was, when they asked him on the news, what are you going to do now? And he says, I'm going to go buy more crap. (laughs) Now, really, there are folks in the service right now that would give everything they own to have the heartbeat of their loved one back. Puts it into perspective. And it, it opens your eyes to, as the Apostle Paul said, it's all dung. And we, we pile it up and we store it. And we polish it. And we carry it. And it's dung. And all of a sudden, in this moment in time, you have Perspective. And, and instead of beholding all of your worldly possessions, look at this car. Behold this car. Behold this silver set. Behold this painting. God says in this passage, behold me. Not once, but twice. Or basically saying, here I am. Hello. 
Here I am. And it's an event like this that allows us to see him once again. And as that stool falls and we tumble, God brings us to this understanding that we are a three-part being, body, soul, and spirit. There is good and evil. There is truth and there is a lie. There is right, there is wrong. It's a metaphysical world. And if you doubt that, then would you please stand and share with everybody how this event that took 12 lives, including the shooters, which would be 13, how this is not in some way, shape, or form evil. I don't know what the motives were. I don't care. Is there a higher calling in life? This was a great article. What was it in, babe? Was it Wall Street Journal? Real men save lives in Thousand Oaks. It's written about one of the young men in our church, an Eagle Scout. Two of the victims were Eagle Scouts, by the way. I'm here to protect my friends, my family, my fellow humans, Matt Winterstrom said. The mass shooting at Thousand Oaks, California bar last week was a tale of men and masculinity. The alleged killer was a 28-year-old Marine corporal who had completed a tour in Afghanistan in 2011. After a brief marriage which dissolved during his service, he returned to California, moved back in with his mother. He pursued a sports medicine degree but dropped out because by his own account, a patient had talked down to him and bruised his ego. Neighbors called police several times alarmed by the menacing racket of his fights with his mother. One neighbor reported the walls inside were full of holes as if kicked in. Only rarely did he go out, according to neighbors. While he was still pursuing a degree, the shooter had been a regular at the Borderline Bar and Grill, and he knew that Wednesday night college country night would be packed with undergraduates drinking and dancing. He entered tossing smoke grenades designed to confuse. He unloaded a Glock fitted with an illegal extended magazine into the crowd. There were other young men there, too. Some are in this room, including our own congregant, 20-year-old Matt Winterstrom. In interviews, Mr. Winterstrom looks like a typical college student, backward baseball cap, gray t-shirt, jaw scruffy with a few days growth. On camera, he seems laconic, humble, willing to answer questions, neither eager for the limelight nor afraid of it. As soon as he heard the shots, Mr. Winterstrom told ABC News he knew exactly what was going on. He and some friends grabbed everyone they could and pushed them down behind the pool table, piling their own bodies on top of the girls. One woman who was celebrating her 21st birthday told Good Morning America, there were multiple men who got on their knees and pretty much blocked all of us with their back toward the shooter, ready to take a bullet for every single one of us. When the shooter paused to reload, Mr. Winterstrom grabbed a bar stool and tossed it through a window He and his buddies pulled 30 to 35 people to safety, and after they got some to the parking lot, they went back for more. A reporter asked Mr. Winterstrom how he immediately knew what was going on in the loud, crowded bar. Instinct, I guess, he said. I'm here to protect my friends. And I know where I'm going if I die, so I'm not worried about that sacrifice. All I wanted to do is get as many people out of there as possible. This is the masculinity we so often hear denigrated 
It takes as its duty the physical protection of others, especially women. This masculinity doesn't wait for verbal consent or invitation to push a person out of harm's way. It sends hundreds of firefighters racing up the Twin Towers to save people they've never met. It sent Sergeant Ron Helis of the Ventura County Sheriff's Office rushing into Borderline Bar and Grill where the shooter was waiting for him. I got to handle a call. Helis had just told his wife over the phone, I love you. The way so many women have a natural ease with caring for children, so too do many men have the, the instinct to protect and serve. We can harness it, but it doesn't proceed automatically. It is a refined sort of masculinity that must be developed and praised. The military has done this for years. Police academies and fire departments do too. Only the educated classes have learned to sneer at it. Would that they ever needed it. There will always be young men like Matt Winnerstrom, or excuse me, like the shooter, and there will always be young men like Matt Winnerstrom. The shooter was full of rage, mentally unstable, living with his mom, failing to launch. We can work to eliminate the threat they pose or treat whatever mental disease hobbles them, but we will never stop every malefactor from obtaining a weapon. The extended magazine that enabled the shooter to fire so many rounds is already illegal in California We will also never entirely eradicate evil, but if we continue to disparage heroism, if we repeatedly shame those who want to protect women, we can suppress the impulse. We are no doubt doing so already, but somehow Mr. Winnerstrom and his buddies missed the lecture that young women don't require protection, and as a result, many lives were saved that night. Even reading that, I'll get response. But it really comes to this place where Matt did what he did not to prove a point in one of his college classes or to contend with his professor. He did it because the Lord told him to do it. We can debate this as a community, but let's celebrate the character it was hard sitting through Sergeant Helis's service. When you learned about Justin's life, Cody's, there's more to come. Christina, when we were over there and see me, these kids were amazing. We desperately need in our culture a three-legged stool. We gotta get back to character. I close with this. This is Isaiah 66. Thus says the Lord, heaven is my throne, earth is my footstool. Where is the house that you will build me? And where is the place of my rest? For all those things my hand has made and all those things exist, says the Lord, but on this one thing will I look, on him who is poor and of a contrite spirit and who trembles at my word. I got to that passage after I'd read the first two and just asking the Lord what he wanted to say as we we come to kind of a close in our study of Isaiah. 
Heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. Three-legged stool at that. Little ottoman. Imagine the Lord who holds the heavens in the span of his hand. There's the earth. He's like. (laughs) And we, we look at buildings like this. And it really is a beautiful building. And we have dedicated this to the glory of God. Yes, but. I don't think he could fit in here. And he looks at this and he thinks, where is the house that you're going to build me? Do you, do you realize I've made the heavens? I've made everything. I spoke the heavens into existence. And with your hands, you've put up some sound batting and paint and some really nice sconces. And you took out the pool. But we did it to the glory of the Lord. No, you did it so you can hear the music better. And it wouldn't make as much noise with a 22-second echo so that the lighting would be nicer. Well, yes, but we wanted it to be for you. No, you got the cushy chair so you could be comfortable. Well, yes, but we wanted to worship. Yes, so you got a really nice sound system. Well, we did. Yeah, we did. And the screen, so it's easier to see. Yes, Lord, we did. We were hoping maybe we could get some blinds too (laughs) and and the the reality of it is what God is saying is you're not building me a house I got one what's going to house me do you realize what this what this looks like to me where's the house you're going to build me and then he asked this question that is it, it's, in, it's intense. He says, where is the place of my rest? I mean, this has, been, this has been a rough week. We're all pretty tired. I can guarantee you Chief Hagel is wiped out. We, Michelle and I saw uh, Sheriff Ayub at the Oaks Christian game where they asked me to do the prayer and he's down there and I, he's like, my wife called me, she misses me. Go home. Well, as he goes, somebody else wants to hug him and talk to him. And then somebody else wants to hug him and talk to him. And all the texts I got, did you get to see the president? I didn't get to see the president. No. Okay. (laughs) So just shut up. (laughs) And it's just, you know, and, and this is, this is their life and it's tiring. And, and how do you get rest? Got a call from a, um, a couple that's out of state, they, they, would att- they attended here and they moved out of state and they said, we want to do something for you. We want to send you a meal. And I said, I don't even know what night we're going to be home together. Well, could we just send you a meal? And it wasn't last night, it was the night before. And we said, okay, send the meal. Have it come at 7.15. And we're running late and we're not going to be home till like eight. And I'm like, we're going to miss the delivery of this thing. Patrons, good Mexican food. <laughs> Michelle and I get home late and Praise the Lord, the delivery was late. So we both arrived and it was warm. We're like, that's a God thing. And the person texts us from out of state and says, did you get it? I said, yeah, the connection, the way it worked, God's so good. And they were rejoicing. And it was sweet. It was really, they just wanted to do something. And then the text comes through. I know you're swamped. I know you're overwhelmed. I know you're real tired. But I, I, I was asking you for prayer because... 
um, were concerned about the baby in the womb that it could have trisome something. And I, I texted him back. I said, you know, God, God chooses the wrapping paper and he's a master knitter and he's got this. And, and uh, the, the attitude of the doctor is, you know, pro-choice and they just, they're always there to find what's wrong and to remove any type of ab- abnormality. And, you know, we, we don't pick the wrapping paper. We just want to make a, a good race of human beings. And I said, you can tell by the attitude of the doctor is the condition of their heart. I, I would just give that to the Lord and trust him. And then I took him to Psalm 127 says, the Lord gives sleep to those he loves. He gives rest to those he loves. I said, now go to bed. Because God loves you. And all of us are tired. And we're all pretty wiped out. And now the fires have died down. And we have a place to relax. But let me ask you this question. Where does God, according to this text, where is the place of his rest? Six days he created, on the seventh day he rested. Not because he was tired. Why did he rest? It's where we get the word in Psalm 23. Um, he leads me beside still water, quiet waters. It's where he just ceases activity. It, it, it's where he, he stops in a place to take it all in. And on the sixth day after he made you and me, or man, he just stopped to take it all in. And he said, let us, interesting, plural, in Genesis, let us make man in our own image. And the Godhead, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, created for relationship. And he, he makes man, and he rests. You know what he rested in? Enjoying the relationship as they walked in the cool, which is the Hebrew word for ruach, the spirit, third part of the stool, in the ruach of the garden, and as he rested there, enjoying man, he had a relationship with man. Man had a free will. He had an exit sign. He could choose that any time he wanted because nobody wants to enter into a relationship where you're forced to be in it. That's called slavery. Just checking. I'm, I'm not married because I have a ring around my finger. I said some words in front of a minister. Or I signed a piece of paper. I, I, I love my wife. And that's what the Lord wanted. He wanted that relationship. Well, we said, you know what? I have to go find myself. And so I'm leaving. And Adam and Eve exited God's presence. They said, eating of that tree, dying, you will surely die. You'll know good and evil. You'll be like that. And so he chooses that and walks away. And this is where we conclude The relationship was broken and now we're in a mess. And if God is going to take away evil from the earth, because that's what was, that's what happened at the borderline. For those who have a three-legged stool, it was evil. For those of you who have a two-legged stool, figure that out. It was evil. And if God wants to remove evil from the earth, he has to remove the source of that evil and it's selfish mankind. But he allows us to remain so that we can fix this mess and build community relationship again. And it's 
It's that question that he asks, where is my place of rest? And he answers it right here. And I love the King James Version, so I put it up. It's in Zephaniah 3.17. The Lord thy God in the midst of thee is mighty and he will save and he will rejoice over thee with joy. He will rest in his love. He will joy over you with singing. He rests in you loving him and him loving you. And I think what's visited our community in the midst of this hell is that for the first time in a really long time, we're starting to love one another. People that we don't normally give the time of day to. I've hugged more Democrat necks. And for those of you Democrats, I'm waiting. Come hug me. Because it really doesn't matter, does it? And I've met people I I'd never would have met. And I don't even remember the election on Tuesday. It, is, it, it seems like that's a thousand years away. And if we get back to start building these three-legged stools in our community, and we do that by letting the world see the Lord and the way we serve one another. Because when we're loving other folks, that's where the Lord finds his rest.